read from God's Word, the book of Revelation, chapter 9. I was a bit ambitious thinking I could cover the whole chapter. I'm just going to read verses 1 through 12 and focus upon the fifth trumpet, or the first of the three woes that are fifth, sixth, and seventh trumpet. The reason for this is because this is, this is mature, hard stuff, and I want us to wade through this, not because it's difficult, but because I want us to not, I want us to take our time and to understand the character and the quality and what the judgment of Christ looks like as it comes from within, as God gives over to sinful men to their deepest, darkest desires. Revelation chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, and I'll read to verse 12. Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke locusts came upon the earth, and to them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth, or green anything, or any green thing, or any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God upon their foreheads. And they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. Their torment was like the torment of a scorching, I'm sorry, scorpion, when it strikes a man. In those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die, and death will flee from them. The shape of the locust was like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were crowns of something like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth. And they had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots with many horses running into battle. They had had tails like scorpions, and there were stings in their tails. There was power to hurt men for five months, and they had as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name is Abaddon. But in Greek, he has the name Apollyon. One woe is past. Behold, still two more woes are coming after these things. Thus far, the reading of God's word, you may be seated. Let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of it. Lord, give us understanding. And may we not be fearful as those who read of desolation and judgment. For in Christ there is confidence that in him we are sealed. For we bear upon our foreheads his glorious name. But Lord, if there be any here without such confidence, we ask that you might grant them godly fear that is in keeping with repentance, that they may even this morning flee to you from the wrath that is to come. For what, Lord, are we to make of good news if there is no horror and terror 
O Lord, may we be of use to the culture, the world around us that is even now in the throes of such horror. May we cry out even as Noah did to flee into the ark of safety. We pray in your name. Amen. As we continue through this book, which records the mighty acts of Christ upon earth and specifically in the early chapters of the book of Revelation, God's judgment through Christ the Messiah upon the land that rejected him, Jerusalem, Israel, the destruction of that city, the destruction of that temple, and all of their rebellion and rejection of him. We find the end of the bloodthirsty cry against Christ. There was a penalty. There was a penalty for their crucifying the Lord of glory. And though it was meant for Christ to die once for the elect, nonetheless, those who put him to death, who did so because they were possessed by demons, we find what happens through continued apostasy. We see the end of Judas. We see the desolation of Esau and Cain, of Pharaoh, and all of those who worship Satan and are in league with the kingdom of darkness. Now, if talking this way makes you uncomfortable, know this. It is because you are a product of an age that does not seek to deal with the reality of supernatural forces except in media. And when I say media, we live in a world that is not a stranger to the presence of the supernatural, of demonic activity. In fact, many horror films are built upon this premise. But the reason why these films are made is because man and what they fear seeks to contain them by dealing with them in a very unrealistic way. Children, when your parents say, be careful little eyes what they see, they're not just talking about pornography. They're talking about the corruption of all that is good and all that is true. And one of those things is the horror of spiritual darkness and what it actually looks like and how it happens and what the purpose for it is. Three points that I want to make as we look at Christ sounding the fifth trumpet against those who were once called the people of God, his beloved bride, a wayward bride to be sure. Three points that I want to make. First, judgment from within. Judgment from within. Second, the destruction of demons. And then thirdly, Christ has come to set the prisoners free. Let's look at the first point, judgment from within. Now, in order to understand the heinous event and the true desperate nature of this particular providence 
and decree against Jerusalem, we need to understand what Christ came to do in the first place. Christ came to set the prisoners free. Free in two ways. Free from the judgment and wrath of God and free from the strong man who is Satan and all of his minions. Christ came to liberate Israel from Egypt. And helpfully within one of the three forms of unity, those are, that's the name for the Heidelberg Catechism, the Belgic Confession, and the Canons of Dort that came from the Dutch Reformation, is a statement concerning the liberation of Israel from Egypt. That God delivered Israel out of the hands of the seed of the serpent, represented by Pharaoh. And the great consecrating event is the Red Sea. It's baptism. And baptism takes place in relationship to covenant when in the progress of the covenant. At the end? At the beginning. In fact, it was in the midst of desperate faithlessness when God showed his faithfulness to Israel by baptizing them in the Red Sea. What happened to Egypt on that same day? Not water of consecration, but water of judgment. And so we find two nations divided by a singular act of God. One to consecration, this is my beloved people, and one to judgment. The greatest of all dividing acts in history, greater than the flood, is what? The cross of Christ Jesus. The cross of Christ Jesus proclaims to those who see and believe and even to those who do not see and do not believe that God will judge all men through one single act, Christ. And so you are either in Christ or you are not. You are either brought through the water or you are judged by it. The same in fire. Israel was consecrated like gold refined and the dross removed. But here, as Christ is moving through Israel, what he is doing is he is, in a sense, upping the ante of the fulfillment of the promise of enmity. It's the fever pitch. It's the battle at its most fierce And we must stop looking at the world as merely a product of rational human choices that lack spiritual depth. Paul wants us to stop thinking that way. For our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers of the air. That does not mean that the spiritual battle does not manifest itself in the physical, what is seen. But that it doesn't begin in the physical, it begins in the spiritual. And while Christ is on the earth in the incarnation, what we find him doing is healing physical ailments that are the product of the fall. And casting out demons that bring with them symptoms of their own identity. Now, Presbyterians don't like to talk like this. Because Presbyterians tend to be a bit more informed by theological precision and we are a little bit uncomfortable with 
talking about this thing that is in some ways quite mysterious, despite the fact that Scripture speaks about it an enormous amount. And that is how the metaphysical, the phenomenal, is informed by, or I should say the nominal, informs and influences the phenomenal. Nominal means that thing that is real that we cannot see. Phenomenal, that which is real that we can see. Right? You can go up to someone and touch them, but you can't touch a demon. You can't touch an angel. What was that Hallmark show? Touched by an angel? This is why we have it so wrong. Is because we make light of it. And even when movies are made to cause you to fear, the way to redemption is never through the blood of Christ, right? Because the Catholic priest is always the guy that gets it, isn't he? He's always the guy that gets killed first and his neck is turned. There are spiritual forces at work. And we need to understand that. So in, Matt, in Mark chapter 5 and Luke chapter 8 and also in the Gospel of Matthew, there is, an, there is an episode where Christ is walking through the outskirts of a city and there is a man who comes to him and he is crazed of mind. And Christ casts the demons out of him. And he causes the demons to wander through a dry and desolate place. This is what Christ came to do. And only Christ can do this. Now, there is a scene to the book, Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe, that I read as a child, and then PBS made a movie. The CGI doesn't hold up. But I remember reading the book, and in the scene where Aslan is going to the stone table, if you've not read the Chronicles of Narnia, it's summer for some of you. And it's about to be summer in four days. Children, read the Chronicles of Narnia. Parents, uh, if you don't want them to, I understand. But you don't have a good reason not to at this point. <clears throat> For this reason, there are images that are captured in fiction that give help to some of the strong teaches, uh, passages in Scripture that are difficult for us to imagine. And there is a scene in the Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe, and Aslan, who is the Christ figure, is laying down his life so that one of the children of earth may be saved. And he makes a covenant with the white witch. I will give my life if you spare the child. And the two youngest children go and they observe the whole incident. And they're standing there, not unlike Mary, Jesus' mother, and John, the beloved disciple, watching Aslan be put to death. And while he is being killed, stabbed, beaten, his hair, this beautiful mane is cut, it is in the presence of all of these ghosts and ghouls and demons and just vile creatures with pustulant wounds and they're oozing. And the picture that Lewis wants us to have is that evil is ugly. And there is Aslan laying down his life for his friend, for this child, so that this may not happen to him. This is a picture in some fashion of the ugliness of the spiritual nature of demons. 
He is putting to flesh what is true spiritually of these angels of darkness. And the reason why I recommend books like these is because parents, adults, even if you don't have children, sometimes we grow hardened, not in our imagination, because it's not imagination. We think all there is is what we can see. We get lost in the nine to five, the grind. And not only that, but we have been blessed in this country in particular by the, the effect of the gospel pushing out much of this darkness for many, many, many years. And it's returning. And I think we need to see the world as God would have us see it. Now, let's bring it to Jerusalem. What is happening in the fifth trumpet, in the first of the woes, is the opening of the pit and the loosing of the demons led forth by Satan. That is what we see. The locusts are not helicopters. You've heard all this pre-mill dispensational stuff. I want you to put that away from your mind. I want you to stop thinking that way. I want you to think this is the judgment that Christ is pouring out on those who like demons and ghouls. Can you imagine the evil that must be in the heart of a man to see Christ and to say, kill him? It's the same evil that drives a young man into an elementary school to kill children. It's not mental illness. Or if it is, it is the product of spiritual brokenness. It is the loosing of demonic activity upon Jerusalem for this reason. They were invited in. When you kill the Lord of glory, you bow the knee to Satan. In fact, the evidence of a house divided is that they attributed to Christ the power of the devil. And when you attribute to Christ, who is the word made flesh, the light of light, the truth of truth, the savior and redeemer of mankind, and you say you are nothing but the devil, who is that talking? It is not the intellectual skeptic. It is the confession of Satan himself. Now, Christ has become the king of the cosmos. And when you read Revelation chapter 9, I want you to think of the book of Job. And in the book of Job, there is a scene where the triune Lord is upon the throne and Satan comes. And he says, have you thought of Job? What is Satan trying to do with Job? What is Satan trying to do with everyone who confesses the name of Christ? To see if he can do with them what he did with Adam and his wife. Because this is what Satan wants to do. He wants to tear the whole thing down. He wants to destroy every green place, every beautiful thing. He wants it all to be ash and dust and just smoldering ruin of what God says good. It is the, it's the, it's the absolute inverse of what God wants to do. And Adam and his wife played right into his hand because they believed the light that is the lie. But it was not light. 
In order for sin to be tempting, what must it be? Beautiful in our eyes. And that's how it begins. But as you reach out for that thing that is beautiful, what is reaching out to you, hidden by your desire, is a crooked hand wishing to bring you into the grave. I want you to be afraid. And children, I want you to be afraid. That there is a war for your soul. Now, I will say this. The reason why we baptize children is because what we are saying at the very beginning of their life is they belong to Christ. They're not spiritual orphans. Because you're either in Christ's camp or you are in Satan's camp. And we're not going to leave you somewhere in the middle where we don't know what you are. We know you belong to Christ. And it isn't a hand that seeks to bring you down to the grave, but a hand that wishes to bring you up to inform and strengthen and enlighten you in the ways of truth. Now, this first woe is Christ giving to Jerusalem exactly what they asked for. And when you reject the gospel, it it isn't just a... It isn't a response of neutrality. It is a rejection of life and turning and embracing death. It is as though you are hugging and bringing into your midst unbridled wickedness. And the only thing that keeps you from rampant ungodliness is even the common grace of God at times. Now, what is happening is that demons are set loose upon Jerusalem. And they're described as locusts, as scorpions. Think the, the orcs. And in the imagery of Tolkien, they come from what? These fiery furnace pits. They're creatures of hell, they're creatures of destruction. And every thought and intention is kill, kill, kill. Corrupt, corrupt, corrupt. Now, when Satan comes to Christ in Job, he wants to show God that the only reason why Job is following him is because God has given him great wealth. But that was not the treasure of Job. That was not why Job was a rich man. In fact, the wealth of Job is described at the beginning of the book as a man who kept covenant with God and who, like a picture of Christ, sought to mediate between his children and God who he understood to be the judge of all the earth. Job was a righteous man. And the reason why Satan could touch his body, could afflict his family, was because God gave him permission It looks like Revelation chapter 9, verse 4. They, these demons, according to the organized power of the devil, were commanded. And who is commanding them? Christ. Not to harm the grass of the earth or anything that is green, the Noahic covenant, or any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. This was not a test of faith like a free will person would understand Job's faith, right? It's how hard you cling to Christ. No, what Job is is a testimony of how hard Christ clings to men even in the midst of their suffering. And the confession of one of whom Christ has laid hold of is what? Yet in my death I know I will see the Lord. 
Satan could not touch Job. He could hurt him. He could remove all of those things precious to him. He lost his children, he lost his health, and he lost intimacy with his wife. And his friends betrayed him because they thought, like so many do now, they did not understand the spiritual reality of conflict because he was sealed by Christ. So we learned two things from Job and here. That God brings great judgment upon the earth because of the sins of men and here expressly because of their rejection of the Messiah. And God also preserves and upholds the souls of those who are connected to him, who are the elect. Elect from every nation who are one or all the earth, their charter of salvation, one faith, one Lord, one birth, as we sing. It's Christ. It is Christ who says, go forth, right in judgment as an implement of his sovereignty, but that far and no farther. Any judgment that the church experiences that is for our good, and it is for our good, is for the blessing. It is for the preservation. It is for the revelation of God's power on earth. But boy, does he bring a destructive force. What we find outlined here in verses 1 through 12 is a terrifying sight. Because as the demons are set loose upon Jerusalem, the fruit of their occupation in men is truly horrendous. Now, one of the reasons why it's hard to look at Revelation 9, and one of the reasons why we want to push it off into the future, is because oftentimes we do not understand where evil comes from, what its fruit is, and what it looks like, especially when we are given over to it. Although I think we're seeing it more and more. It's not cultural deterioration at its root, it's not something natural, it's not Rome. It was the rebellion of those who broke covenant with the Lord. And what God does is he uses means to accomplish all his holy will. Rome and the possession of those by demons to bring about great violence within the city itself. Because they were given free reign aside from that little group called out. That group of people sealed along with nature, at least part of nature. Some trees were torn down, as we read earlier in chapter 8. But it was, in verse 5, to the torment for five months. This is a historical occurrence in which for 60 days, the city of Jerusalem was not only sacked from without, but experienced great chaos and murder and death within. And in those days, men will rather die than live. I want you to think suicidal ideation. Do you see suicide as a problem even now in our culture? Why? Why would someone rather die than live? Because they have nothing to live for. Because they are tormented. And they are not just tormented in their hearts. They are tormented not only in their minds, but they are tormented in their souls. We need to understand the gradation of divine judgment... And that Jerusalem is on the far end of the spectrum of being given over to their godlessness. 
Now, in a minute, we're going to get to the description of these demons. But what we need to see, as I said already, is that the nature of demons is to destroy. You do not get to loose yourself from the authority of God and enjoy your freedom. Children, I want you to run an experiment. At 7, 10, young men at 16, because it takes longer, loose yourself from all the authority of your parents that coincides also with the blessing of your homes. And I want you to ask yourself this question. Am I better off as a result? If you were to actually be man enough to leave your parents' home physically, as you do in your hearts in rebellion, I want you to ask yourself this question. Am I better off now? Homeless? Who's going to do my laundry? (laughs) Who's going to... Who's going to put a plate in front of me? Who's going to clothe, house? This is the fifth commandment, lived out. If you are going to reject Christ's divine authority, you must also reject his divine mercy. And you and I have no idea just how deep that mercy goes as a preservation of our lives. And not just our spiritual health, but our physical health. The nature of demons is to destroy. Now, what God does is he uses judgment in our lives to go, are you listening to me? Is that really what you want? Parents, you've done this with your own children. You let them have what they ask for. Touch it. I don't care. It's hot. Touch it. Let's see what happens. It hurts, doesn't it? Right? Some of that can be cruelty. You don't want to be too cruel. But there are times, especially as your children get older, when you just have to say, all right, you can have it. Let's see how it goes. And not cynically, not cruelly, but there are times in the life of Israel where God has said, you can have the gods of this world. And what they end up with is what? Pagan ritualistic acts of abortion and polygamy. It's the same Pagan sins. Do you think there were no fires burning at the bottom of Babel? How do you think they thought they would get into God? How have we always done it? And you know what? I don't think even as Christians we understand the depth of our depravity. Because so much of it is cold and clinical. And it happens with a knife. A scalpel. And it's hidden even in the womb of a mother. It seems invisible to us. Or even if it is not visi- if it is visible, we close our eyes and we stop up our ears and we say, just as long as I can make a living, no. The nature of demons is to destroy. Now this is what Josephus, who is a very early historian, said of what was happening within the walls, not just Rome, but within the walls of Jerusalem. With their insatiable hunger for loot. Let me read that in a minute. Let me read verse 7 and following. The shape of the locust was like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were crowns of something like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. They had teeth and hair like women's hair, and their teeth were like trans. I'm sorry, I was thinking that thought trans. Like lion's teeth. And they had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots with horses running into battle. 
I said trans because, well, that's what they're doing, right? With their insatiable hunger, Josephus writes, for loot, they ransacked the houses of the wealthy, murdered men, violated women for sport. They drank their spoils with blood and from mere satiety and shamelessness gave themselves up to effeminate practices, plating their hair and putting on women's clothing, drenching themselves with perfumes and painting their eyelids to make themselves attractive. They copied not merely the dress but also the passions of women, devising in their excess of licentiousness lawful pleasures in which they wallowed as in a brothel. Thus they entirely polluted the city with their foul practices, yet though they wore women's faces, their hands were murderous. They would approach with mincing steps. They suddenly became fighting men and whipping out their swords from under their dyed cloaks, they would run through every passerby. It's Chicago. It's San Francisco. It's Portland. It's every abortion mill in Charlotte. Charlotte. Listen, there was a school, a public school in Texas, right? God bless Texas. Don't mess with Texas. And the the faculty, the administration in that school brought a bunch of drag queens to perform for the students and to teach them about transsexuality. God bless America. Where? Now, we ought to cry out, Lord, please bless our land. Now, this isn't, well, here's how it works. When a group of people breaks covenant with God, the consequence for those things is what? It's the same consequence, children, when you rebel from your parents. You don't get the benefit of their authority. And we have, as a people, just like Jerusalem, violated, corrupted, broken covenant with God. And what we find in our midst is a Roman one issue. It isn't just run-of-the-mill corruption, right? Like what happens when you drive too fast? You may actually kill someone. We have not just driven 10 over. We have neglected every driving law there is. Such that we say, whatever God calls good, we're going to call evil. And whatever God calls evil, we call good. And what we're getting for that is sin that is worse than the days of Noah, worse than the days of Sodom, even worse than the days of Jerusalem. So, what do we do? Well, here's my point. My point is this. The the way in which satanic influence and power is manifested... Is not, it isn't just sin. It's such corruption that that which is obvious normally is no longer obvious. So that I just saw the other day a picture of a man sitting beside his wife with a pregnant belly. In what universe does that happen? Where does that happen? It doesn't happen. But do you know why we do that? Because we have become so intent in rejecting anything that reeks of the presence and the light and the truth of God's word that we will believe the most absurd lies possible. So that we can say, no, 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 I don't want that truth. What happened to Jerusalem 
was sexual deviance and the bloodlust of child sacrifice. And you had a bunch of men dressed like women. Men don't ever dress like women. Don't ever do it. Don't let your fingernails be painted and don't put on lipstick. Don't ever pretend. Be men. And let your wives and your daughters and your sisters and the women that you know be women. But you have a group of men who dressed like psychopathic, transgendered people. And yet they acted in great violence. Why? Because they were possessed by transgender demons. Now demons don't have gender. But the chaos and confusion of those angels, fallen angels, brought about in that city such violence and harm that no one was safe except those like Israel and Egypt who were covered by the blood of Christ Jesus. Now, yes, I'm trying to get canceled ever before I ever became an influencer. But here is why I'm talking about these things. Parents, sometimes we look at our kids and we see them going astray and we say, well, they're just struggling with X. Because we want to not necessarily face the truth of what's actually happening. That there may be actually really rebellious. And so we'll say to ourselves, well, they're just going through a phase. Or we'll say, every teenager goes through that phase. You should see what I was like when I was a kid. I don't want you to see what I was like. And you know what? Because I was like a certain kid, I don't want my kids to be that way. But what we do is we justify, we rationalize, and we make excuses. When Christ came, he didn't say, oh, you know Israel. They love to complain. What does he do? He holds them to the standard of revelation that they had woven into their very psyches, their hearts, their souls, These are the people that had Abraham and Moses and David. And these are the people that cried out in bloodthirstiness to put the Messiah to death. The rich abuse the poor, the powerful, the weak. This is the way of the world. And the reason why the world is the way that it is is because much of it has been given over. And we need to stop just saying, well, that's just the way it goes. And we live in a world that wants to attribute to the cause of violence things that are not true causes. So right now, this wicked act of violence, and it is growing, and these things are happening, and the answer is not guns in schools. The answer is what? You can't have a school without Christ. There's no such thing as education without the gospel. Now, I'm not saying we don't need to protect our children. What I'm saying is we need to step back, way back, and we need to ask ourselves, what is happening around us as they would have asked in Jerusalem as we see the judgment of God, and it is very clear, and it is God's judgment. Satan is the one who's loosed. It is God's judgment. How do we receive his favor? I was rebuked by a Christian for calling abortion child sacrifice. Really? What else is it? 
And I know sometimes there are circumstances where the right decision is very hard. Whenever you sin, you sin because the decision seems difficult. But this isn't just run-of-the-mill corruption. This is the kind of being given over to judgment that happens when you self-consciously, in the face of truth, say, I hate that truth. It's Judas. And what did the scriptures say of him? It would have been better had he never been born. It would have been better had he never been an embodied soul. Young people, I want you to think of your rebellion as apostasy. Rebellion is, what does the scripture say? As of the sin of witchcraft. What is witchcraft? It is actively living under the influence of demonic activity. And so Jerusalem, that once great city, has been given over to this corruption. And for 60 days, the mouth of hell was opened, as it were. And the king of the locusts, and locusts have no king, as we read in Proverbs. And so they're like locusts, but they're not. They're organized by the one who is called Abaddon, or Apollyon, which means destruction. Do you know what happens when you worship destruction? You become like what you worship. If you worship the Lord of life, you get life. If you worship the Lord of destruction, you get destruction. But there is good news in all this. Why do I say all these things? Because if we don't understand the disease, we don't know what medicine to take. That Christ has come to set prisoners free. And I will say this to you, church. Now, more than ever before, what is being revealed is the plot. And the plot is this. And this is what Satan always does. He overplays his hand because he's impatient, because he's wretched. And though he schemes, and there are times when we fall to his schemes, he has no power by comparison to the one who sits upon the throne, who is the one that is free to bind him and loose him, loose him and bind him, and tell him where to go and who to touch and who not to touch. That despite this great woe in Jerusalem, verse 4, what are we reminded of? That there were those even in that great city, in that horrible place of death and destruction, whose souls could not be touched. Even the Noahic covenant is represented here. When God promises to Noah what? I will preserve the world until all the elect are brought in. We don't deserve this. Who do you think you are? We deserve scorched earth. None of us should be invited upon the ark. We all deserve to die horrendous, self-inflicted, violent deaths. But what happens in Christ Jesus? All of that wrath and anger of God against ungodliness, he poured out upon his son. And all of those arrogant ghosts and ghouls and demons that gave themselves to the white witch, on the moment of Aslan's resurrection, what happened? They fled. Such that in the scriptures, even at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. 
So I want to do two things then. I want you to see the darkness of unbelief, but I also want you to see the real power in the gospel of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ so that you may look at evil and go, that is evil. I don't want to touch that garbage. And then you may say of Christ, but Christ can set the prisoners free. Such that in 1 Corinthians, when we read of the people who were there, Paul speaks of all sexual immorality and he says, such were some of you. I want us to look at the, the, the horror of drag queen story hour. And I want us to say this. How does the gospel conquer such corruption? So that we can look at it in disgust, but also say, how do we change that corruption into purity? Now, what many of the church are saying is what? We need to water down the gospel. We need to water. And the only reason they're doing is this because they want to live in their sins. They want Christ and their sexual immorality. I've gone on too long already. <laughs> there is a king who is not a king of destruction. Who does not loose upon the earth all that is wretched and black and dark and desolate. Who cuts down all the trees. But there is a king who brings right order to creation. What does the new heavens and the new earth look like? It's a garden. Full of life and fruit and joy. This is the kingdom that we ought to bear witness to. And sometimes it's a little garden in the midst of a desolate place. But now that the Holy Spirit has been sent into the world, I want us to think this way. Not, oh boy, we may as well sit on our hands while the world around us goes to pot. No, I want to say, let's go after those who have nothing to offer. They have nothing to offer. And so what it requires of us as those whose names are sealed and written in the Lamb's Book of Life is to go into those dry and desolate places and plant Eden. Little oases of truth and goodness and beauty. And it comes with the gospel. And that table is what stands at the center of it. And it is the promise of salvation. Let's pray. Lord.